the uh, <clears throat> the Buddha said that there are different functions of a of a Dharma talk, and that one function is to uh, one kind of Dharma talk we could say is to provide instructions, and a lot of um, Vipassana teachers, mindfulness teachers, insight teachers are pretty heavy on the instructions, right? Yeah. That uh, the uh, basic approach is we are saddled with a certain amount of dukkha, of dissatisfaction, and we need some practices, techniques, approaches, attitudes to uh, meet that and cultivate more and more freedom. So instructions are, of course, have their place. But the Buddha said there are also talks that are meant to, to gladden the mind. That they're not instructional, they're just meant to actually gladden the mind. And I was, I was talking with a friend of mine who, um, who teaches meditation too, and we were talking about how much we talk about suffering. <laughs> yeah, I see some nodding. Uh, and uh, that, that, the, that we need to find ways of kind of uh, nourishing ourselves in order to, to do the work of the path. And that um, gladness or lightness in the mind is a really important feature that, that supports us in, in meeting our lives skillfully. Sometimes, the Buddha said, uh, talks are about... Uh, to encourage and support practice, to, to inspire in some way. And this is important because, uh, you know, sometimes I feel like the main thing we're saying is, uh, is keep going. It's just keep going. And so some talks function um, as a way of, of um, encouraging. And so tonight I, I wanted to talk about something I don't usually talk about. Usually I'm on the more instructional suffering side. Um, and for me, when I talk about suffering, my heart actually is very light. You know, like the first noble truth is not a bummer anymore. Uh, but sometimes it feels like that uh, in the room. And so tonight, instead of uh, kind of the methods, um, I wanted to talk more about the fruits of practice fruits of practice. And uh, some, some teachers, that's all they talk about. And that can be a beautiful life of teaching. 
That doesn't happen so much in the insight meditation world, but some teachers, all they do is keep pointing to what's possible, to the radical possibilities of, of freedom. And you know, by radical possibilities, what's meant is that, uh, as I was alluding to before the sit, our imagination for freedom tends to be uh, sort of impoverished. And so some teachers just keep pointing, keep pointing to the fruit of practice. And I, I wanted to talk tonight about some of those, uh, some of those fruits as, as I've seen them in others or experienced them. Now, with these kinds of talks, it's always good to, actually in general, it's always good to listen to how we're listening. Part of the idea is to hear a talk, but part of it is actually also to listen to how we're listening. And when we talk about the fruits of practice, we can sometimes get into the evaluative mode of grading ourselves in one way or another. So just watch, watch the mind. So some fruits. Uh, our behavior... Uh, and especially our relational behavior. Becomes more closely aligned with our intentions, with our deepest intentions. So when I say relational, I, I and that's, so much of our lives are relational, your relation to ourselves or to others. And this is a big domain of our practice. And uh, some of the, the, one of the outcomes of practice is that that gap between intention and behavior starts to narrow. We, we know that gap, right? Yeah. <laughs> Now maybe that never, that that gap never fully closes. I I don't know, but it definitely can narrow in a dramatic way, so that we begin to feel in step with our hearts in a way. The, the kind of alienation from our own hearts, that, that starts to fade. And the Buddha talked about the, the bliss of blamelessness. And maybe we get that sense a little bit of what it's like to just feel in alignment even with relatively minor intentions, I notice like if I, if I make an intention to do something 
And I just kind of make it in a sort of half-hearted way. And then by the afternoon, I'm already violating the intention of some kind. There's a kind of reverberation that happens and it sort of erodes some of our confidence. And uh, as we practice more and more, it's like there's, there's a kind of clarity then we just feel in deeper alignment. And when we feel in deeper alignment, we can become more and more transparent that our lives um, can be more and more, uh, there's less and less to hide. And one major aspect of, of freedom, of ease in this world, in this life, is the sense that you can't be found out. You can't be found out. Rilke says, I want to unfold I don't want to be folded anywhere because where I am folded, there I am a lie. So this this practice of, um, of coming into alignment with our own, the heart's sort of deepest longings, means that um, it's like the inner life starts to become safer. Our inner life starts to become safer and safer. And we become safer for others too. through this practice of of coming into alignment, of becoming more and more transparent. Our past starts to feel so much more complete. There's a certain wholeness to our life. And the kind of electrically charged memories begin to be diffused in a way. They are touched by the Dharma eye. So this is a kind of process. We sit and we make a commitment to open to what arises. And in that willingness, in that openness, everything arises. Everything that can arise and disrupt our peace will. And in that process, 
uh, it's something we talked about last time, there's this way of, of touching our, our past, touching memory with understanding and love. And this is the way that our past becomes uh, digested And our inner life comes to feel safer and safer. And in that process, it's like um, our whole life starts to feel like a part of Dharma. We see the Dharma in all of it. And it's not that there are no, no regrets or anything like that, but it's just like life feels gathered up and uh, digested, feels digested. There's really no more questioning about practice. And uh, the, the doubt in the value of the practice and also the doubt in our own capacity to benefit, that, that just um, collapses. And so much of our time in practice is spent in, we all know that sense of feeling split and ambivalent and like the story of our practice is often the story of some ambivalence. Questions about our own capacity or about our commitment or something. And... uh, something very relieving when that just fades away. And there's no more question about what's here for me or what should I do or what should I practice? Can I do this? And our whole life just becomes like uh, Dharma. Like they say, like life becomes the practice. It's such a relief to have the kind of ambivalence and doubt uh, just like untangle itself. And in this process, we could say that the, the path, it, it really starts to feel like our own. In a certain way, yeah, it's the Buddhist path. And we can take a lot of uh, sense of refuge in that. But in another sense, it is our path. Larry Rosenberg, the insight teacher, K 
Cambridge said, uh, sometimes he'll say, like as a thought experiment, what if the Buddha didn't exist? What if the Buddha was just a kind of creation by a bunch of, and what he said was, smart people in Palo Alto? Where would that leave us? And at a certain point, uh, it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't matter at all. And there's a sense of not not finding an old path, but actually creating something in our own very personal way. This is Kobinchino. The more you sense the rareness and value of your own life, the more you realize that how you use it, how you manifest it, is all your responsibility. We face such a big task, so naturally such a person sits down for a while. At a certain point, the, the thought of um, practice is not so much uh, an obligation, but the, the thought of leaving it is like abandoning one's own heart. So it feels so natural to keep going. Last time we were talking about anxiety and I talked about um, some of this, this body of research around affective forecasting and how well or not well we predict our emotional Uh, response to events. And uh, it turns out not not too well. And if I had to summarize it, one way would be that we're actually more, more resilient than we think. But this subject came to mind again in in preparing this uh, talk that um, Part of what happens in our practice is we get, and this is just a guess, but uh, we get to be better at predicting our own well-being, what will do it for us and what won't. The Buddha said that um, is almost at times in the suttas, almost like a little mystified, like, where we're confused about what brings happiness and what brings suffering. Uh, I think it was Shanti Davis put it even, you know, most directly when saying, um, we hate suffering, but love its causes. 
uh, and that's pointing to the the fact that we're we're miscalibrated in some ways. We we don't always know what's going to bring us happiness. And sometimes we try something, some accomplishment or money or person or thing, and we just um, it doesn't fully deliver. Uh, but then we just sort of don't know what to do with that and just keep going or shoot higher. But the Buddha is calling us to look deeply, like what can satiate the heart? So... um, Practice helps us get better at predicting what's going to bring us happiness. And when we get better at predicting, um, what tends to happen is a lot of the goals that can organize a life from birth to death are held much more lightly or just released because we know it can't end this longing. So the Buddha directs us back to looking at the craving itself, not the object that promises to relieve the craving. And over time, I think we really sort of dial in what what pleasure can and can't do for us, what relationships can and can't do for us, what success and health and money can and can't do. And when we're better dialed in in those ways, we can make more informed choices. As we practice more, um, we don't think about ourselves as much. That is, um, the sense of the energy required to just keep going, to keep the self going, becomes less and less. And so we, we wind up um, needing to invest less effort, energy, in just sort of keeping the system going, in a way. I love this quote from, from Ajahn Sumedho, um, who's a senior, senior monk in the Thai forest tradition, and, uh, you know, a very well-respected um, senior senior teacher practitioner and uh, one of his students Ajahn Amaro was recounting how uh, at some point in a in a talk he said you know every time i think about myself 
I get depressed. <laughs> you, you got a flavor for that? Like that's this is not a depressed person, and but every time the attention starts to get narrow, it's like that narrowing of the attention and the collapse back into the sense of fixated self, that's almost um, a perfect map of suffering. And more and more in our practice, we um, hold that whole gestalt of self more and more lightly. I was pointing to this during the meditation when I said that um, that to to know the body is to know change, but to all of our being is in the flow of that change. That it's not uh, the self that stands outside. That's that's the that's the kind of illusion, the optical illusion of self is that it it feels like it stands outside of the flow of change. But we come to know more and more, like, no, this is, it's all, there's nothing outside that river. Spiritual practice, um, it by necessity starts as a self-oriented practice. And so we come with, you know, very naturally and innocently, I'm not meaning to be dismissive of this, but it's my, my problems, my suffering. And in one sense, this is a totally valid concern and um, reason to come to practice. But there's a kind of broadening that happens in practice where all of that is, um, is, is held more lightly. The practice doesn't kind of devolve into um, this very kind of narrow self-oriented concern. So sometimes I talk about, um, uh, as a, a way of talking about it, I say that uh, if I gave you a, um, a priceless vase and asked you to carry it over to the bridge, and it was like a huge vase, and you could like just barely get your arms around it. And your job was to deliver it to, uh, to the Richmond Bridge, and you had no mode of transport. <laughs> and I told you that, uh, in fact, it was, wasn't a priceless vase. And, uh, 
very fragile. (laughs) And then I wished you well. (laughs) You would miss a lot of stuff on that walk. (laughs) Right? The stars and other people and suffering itself would be missed. But we, we live with that kind of a sense of a needing to protect something uh, that is both priceless and fragile. Because the, the world will challenge our notions of who we are. And the degree to which we hold that tightly is the degree to which we are vulnerable to many afflictive states. And our, our practice gives us a kind of more and more flexibility and fluidity and ease in how we relate to every notion of I am this, I am not that. As we, um, as we become more safe for others, safe inside, but also safe for others, as we become more safe for others, uh, I think people feel this. And as a consequence, uh, will tend to treat us uh, better because we don't provoke defensiveness and we don't provoke threat. And I don't think this is universally true or something like that, but but on average, as we um, come into more and more sense of like deep non-harming, that's not a moralistic view, but it's just that we're clear that harm does something to us, too. As this becomes a more palpable insight, uh, people, at least some people, will sense that. That is, as we exert less and less egoic pressure on others, You know, it's like the self has a kind of, um, it's it's like a weather system. And, uh, you know, high pressure, low pressure, uh, I don't know anything about meteorology, right? But the high pressure will go towards the low pressure, this kind of thing. The self, too, like, has a kind of outward force. And as we become, uh, hold that more and more lightly, as we see through that more and more deeply, um, that egoic pressure starts to lessen. And people feel that. 
and it allows them to be freer themselves. When I, when I look at my life, um, I, I see uh, some, some variant of something like loneliness has propelled a lot of activity over the course of my life. And it might not be the some kind of piercing sense of um, isolation or something. Um, and it might not even be the kind of loneliness that wants others. But something like... Um, kind of subtle sense of loneliness can propel a lot of activity, a lot of busyness. And it's something that I, I want to give more thought to because I don't feel like I'm totally clear on how it operates in my own life. But I do know that... Uh, Increasingly, the Dharma comes to feel like a companion. And in this way, it, it, it feels like it, yeah, it, it feels like we're never alone, actually. That the teachings take on a kind of vibrancy and aliveness that, that are just almost like a kind of living being because every moment um, is practice and the Dharma is there closer than we are to ourselves as uh, Ajahn Amaro said. And so that sense of like uh, feeling separated and or isolated, that, that really changes with practice. One couple of other things. The the poignancy uh, of being human dawns on us. Like, this whole trip, being human, is a big deal. <laughs> it's a big deal. Yeah. And we, we kind of play it cool. Like it's not. But it's a big deal. And it's uh, amazing and it hurts. And there's uh, something about that insight that just gets, gets into the bones. And it recasts how we think about suffering 
and how we think about ourselves and how we judge ourselves, it recasts so much just the poignancy of being alive. Last uh, fruit of practice I'll, I'll mention is that uh, we can uh, let go of Buddhism. And, and none, of, none of what I've said about the love for the Dharma the love for the teachings, none of that is in contradiction to the, the possibility of letting go of Buddhism. Meaning that, um, you know, the, the ego kind of, it, it absorbs, it absorbs whatever. Like, it wants nothing outside of itself. And there's a process by which the ego kind of uh, colonizes Buddhism, too. And we get, we get attached to Buddhism, which makes sense, right? And um, at times is actually really important and supportive. And a friend of mine said, um, we're as fundamentalist as we need to be. That is like, there are times when clinging to the teachings or clinging to some teaching literally can save our life. And there are times in practice where we uh, know the value of the practice so intimately that we there's no more impulse to defend it. There's no more assumption that we know everything know what's right for others, don't even always know what's right for ourselves. And so we actually can come to hold the, the teachings in a much more gentle way. This is from Ken McLeod. Over time, practice becomes a companion, a very close friend. You're no longer concerned with the benefits. They're there for you and you value them, but they're not why you practice. You also know that your practice will always be there whatever you face in life, and you can draw on what you've learned and trained. You love and value the depth, the richness, the constancy the challenges, the peace, the freedom that you experience in, with, and through practice. 
It is through your relationship with practice that you have a fuller, richer, deeper relationship with life itself. And when the time comes for you to leave, you do so understanding that this parting too is part of life. So we have some some time for to hear hear from you for questions or um, it could be on the, your practice or some question that's arisen from these comments. It's very fortunate that I'm super comfortable with awkward silence. <laughs> Hi. Hey. I really like the, um, and it resonated for me, the, the small, lonely space. And it resonated because it's um, the thought of not necessarily wanting someone to fix it Mm. but just knowing that it's there and I think for me I'm coming to learn that that's a really good time that space to um, to learn something from when I'm when I'm feeling it Mm. and that it maybe is a necessary part of my growth Great, yeah, yeah. And, and I think the, you know, that sense of isolation or loneliness, the antidote is, we usually think it's something or someone, but it's really, it's connection, you know. And it's, the, it's a sense of connectedness, connected to the Dharma, connected to life that puts the heart at ease in those moments, I think. But it's, it's complicated. It's, uh, yeah, thank you. Yeah, a couple in the back. Thank you for your talk. Um, really, I really enjoyed the comment by Ajahn Amaro that you reported that whenever I think about myself, I get so depressed. And um, I never really thought about it that way, but that seems so true. And um, I work all day with patients with depression and anxiety, and that's such a perfect description of what mm. I'm seeing. And... Um, but somehow it was such a light bulb to hear it that way. So I'd love to hear more about that phenomenon and yeah. uh, just more 
any more thought of your thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, well, I, I I don't think it's the 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 smallness of mind is the cause of all of all suffering. As some people might say that, I don't think it's the cause of all suffering. Um, but it does seem to co-vary. We could use statistical language, like it co-varies with suffering. Right? Yeah? So there's a correlation. Uh, and when we're in the throes of depression or, or intense clinical anxiety, um, this, it's like the self gets so rigid and we get the attention is so deeply pooled in the kind of narrative of self. And we're so deeply identified with that whole world. You can hear it in how people talk. You can hear how pooled the attention is in that, that orbit. And a few weeks ago I talked about a, a, a quote from Daniel Dennett, the philosopher, who said, the self is the center of narrative gravity. It's a very beautiful phrase, the center of narrative gravity. And we can sense the, that gravitational pull. And uh, it's not an accident that so many of the metaphors of freedom are about space. And spaciousness. And the openness of the mind the vastness of awareness. Because it seems like suffering, the intense forms of suffering, just can't exist in that space. That the suffering somehow necessitates that narrowing And so, um, one of the kind of long-term trajectories of, in practice is um, is just uh, the self is taken so much less seriously. Uh, and as a result, it feels so much less confining and less fixated, less rigid. And part of what enables that, that, that development is loving the self. It seems like those are in competition, but, but part of what, uh, actually sometimes even in psychology, I feel like when people are talking about self-love, they're talking about something that's definitely on the path towards insight into selflessness. 
So the two are not, are not separable. They're definitely not in competition, actually. Uh, because when we um, actually can love ourselves, we hold ourselves so much more gently. We're so, we take ourselves so much less seriously. And the self that is loved is so much easier to forget than the self that's hated. Not all of this has to come out of meditation practice. Sometimes I see people on it, they go on an antidepressant and that has the same effect. It's maybe a little bit controversial to say, but the, the um, just to put in a plug for psychopharmacology, uh, just that, um, that I, it's not always insight. I mean, ultimately, I, I do believe insight for, for the deepest kinds of freedom, that's, there almost nothing can deliver that other than I think what we're doing. But, um, but sometimes when you see somebody treated successfully with therapy or medication, um, you see the self, the center of narrative gravity, it gets much lighter. Yeah, one other. I had all these deep things, and then I started listening to you, and I'm all flaky in my brain. But <laughs> what I wanted to say was, it never ceases to trip me out how the Dharma affects me. Yeah. So I spoke to Noah last week by chance, the first time in probably four years. Yeah. Which then kind of started this whole thing where I started an intention journal this weekend. Yeah. <laughs> and I started setting my intentions, and then by chance I decided screw it, I'm going to Spirit Rock tonight. And you start talking about intention. Mm. And it just, you know, always blows my mind. I don't know why I avoid it when you know it's going to fix things or help you. You still kind of like dodge the Dharma because suffering is kind of like a blanket and mm -hmm. it feels good sometimes and it's uh, more, it's what you know, I guess. Mm. And something I've battled with my practice for 10 years, it's always... Yeah. Who am I if I'm not pissed off? Yeah. Suffer suffering is definitely the path of least resistance, mm -hmm. in a way. In a weird way, yeah. And then something you were mentioning about teachers just made me think of, I don't know if you've seen the movie Kumari, I think is what it's called. A documentary about an East Indian fellow who pretends to be a teacher. Yeah. To see, just... Hey, let's just see what happens. Yeah, I'm and actually doing that. Right, exactly. That's <laughs> a wig, right? <laughs> We're all actually doing that, but yeah. But it tripped me out because, yeah. you know, Friday Night Sits with Vinny. Yeah. It's like Led Zeppelin. The girls line up two hours early to get in to see him and be up front. Yeah. Because it's all about the, the visual and not so much about the teachings, I feel like, sometimes. And you forget about how what your part is in it. 
so I think that movie and what we were talking mm. about the teachers and attachment to the Buddhism and attachment to the teachings, that's what that reminded mm. me of. And just to mm. remember to come home. Great, great. Thank you. Yeah, maybe one one more in the back. Thank you. So I'm a first timer. Okay, <laughs> I've never sat welcome. in a meditation before. This is the first time meditating at all. Yeah, ever. Wow. <laughs> That's awesome. So, so thank 35 you. Thirty five minutes. I did two minutes my first time. Uh, and so uh, this is, feels like a very ignorant question, um, as this is all new to me. But when you were just talking about sense of self uh, and that you, maybe in an ideal world, aren't necessarily as focused on the sense of self, what is it that you are suggesting Suggesting that we should be focused on? Because right now I feel so egocentric that I can't think of what else I would focus on. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> um, yeah. I um, the teachings on self and not self are um, the mind picks them up as like a riddle to be solved, and and there's um, the self really wants answers, you know. And um, most, mostly I would say um, just keep it coming back <laughs> and actually paying attention to your experience. Yeah. Um, but I'll, I'll say that um, what, what comes to occupy us more and more uh, is, uh, is others. Yeah. Like the only other answer, right? If not self, other. Yeah. And um, that's, that's the kind of long-term trajectory of this path is, is towards, um, uh, towards caring. Yeah. Um, I love your question. Yeah, that's great. Let's just sit for a moment.
So whatever goodness is uh, present here tonight. May it remind you of your own goodness. the poignancy of being alive. And may whatever momentum is created by our efforts here tonight, may this be of benefit. May that goodness spill out from our own hearts, minds, and be a cause for less suffering, more joy. Thank you. Lovely to be with you. See you. Uh, see you sometime soon.